Do you know what this uh, introduction, who, which judges was introducing? Samson, that's right. Okay, so um, Samson's story is four chapters long, and we didn't want to have our reading be 25 minutes long, and so we just read the very introduction, but why don't you help me fill in the pieces here? This is the crowd participation part. So when you hear the word Samson, um, what maybe word or maybe short phrase comes to your mind about, uh, about who Samson is or what he did? Just real quick, popcorn around the room, anyone? Killed a whole bunch of people, and then I didn't hear it from there. But that's true. He did kill a whole... What else? Delilah. Delilah. Strong. That's right. What else? Long hair. Long hair. Good, good. Anything else? Sorry, strong. strong. Okay, yes. Loner? Loner? <laughs> Hopeless romantic. Hopeless romantic. Yeah, okay. Uh, Hopeless romantic is a very optimistic word to use, or a very optimistic phrase to use to describe. Okay, very good. Thank you. We could probably go on for a long time because, I, like I said, four chapters long, the story of Samson, and we're going to review it together in just a second. It's probably easily the most well-known uh, story of all the judges. <clears throat> the deal is, is that it's uh, kind of confusing, because on one hand, um, you might read stories about Samson, or maybe you went to Sunday school class with a flannel graph. Does anyone know what those are? Where you read stories about Samson, your teacher told you a story, and he's like this superhero, right? He defeats the enemy over and over again. But then you read some other books, you read the story for yourself, and you read what some scholars say about him, and they pit him as this um, somewhat uh, self-interested, evil, kind of a train wreck of a human being. Like, wait, well, what is the story with Samson? His story ends up making us feel a little bit uh, ambivalent, right? I learned from Daniel Tiger, watching with my kids two years ago, that ambivalent means that you have more than one emotion at the same time towards something or someone. So you kind of have these mixed feelings, right? He's kind of a hero. He is chosen by God, but... But at the same time, he's a selfish train wreck. He takes down the Philistine elites at the very end of his story when this palace comes down. But at the same time, he dies. And you're like, what, what am I supposed to think about this guy? Well, one of the main purposes of this story for ancient Israel in those days was for them to see themselves in the person of Samson. Let me tell you what I mean. So anyway, our, so in other words, they're supposed to look and see uh, uh, something small that was actually very mighty. So Samson was one man, but he had the power of God. In the same way, Israel was a small nation, but they had the power of God, right? They were also both very set apart from the beginning. They were chosen by God from the beginning that a specific purpose uh, in God's mission to move his mission forward and... Um, at the same time, they both ended up being a train wreck. And so it was kind of an indictment to Israel to read the story of Samson. So you think, who ruined Samson? Well, Samson did. Who ruined Israel's fortunes? Israel did, right? But it's not just a story for them. I think it's actually a story for us as well. So many of us in this room are professing Jesus followers. And uh, the story of Samson clues us into one really sobering fact that we're going to kind of land on. And that is that in your life, in your Christian faith or journey, in your journey of following Jesus and carrying out God's mission that he has called you to, there's probably one thing one threat, 
one thing that's kind of lethal to your faith and lethal to carrying out God's mission above everything else. You know what that is? It's us. It's ourselves. That's the story of Samson. You see um, how he performed great, how he impressed people in the same way we can impress, we can perform well, we can look good on the outside while simultaneously being on the fast track to destruction. You see, Samson's story is a warning of sorts. Uh, It's a warning to prioritize the internal over the external. It's a warning to be solely about God's glory and not our own glory. I think this, however sobering this may sound, I think this story actually provides an opportunity of a course correction for us in the room. Many of us who could actually be saved from a catastrophe if we look at what God would be speaking to us through this. And so I know that sounds doom and gloom. You're like, you're going to have a catastrophe. But God puts these words, he puts these stories in here for a reason. So I think we should listen to him tonight. So would you join me really quick as we pray that God would speak to us through this tonight, through the story in Judges. Um, Jesus, we pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to what you would have for us. If you're trying to speak something specifically, um, would we hear it? Would we respond to it? Um, This is um, not by anyone's power, but your power that you can move in this place tonight. So would you help us be attentive to your spirit as we look at this story? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So I want to track through the entire uh, story of Samson, but we're going to do it at kind of a breakneck speed. And as we do, I want to highlight two internal battles that Samson faced. There was a character battle and there was a glory battle that he faced. And as we started in chapter 13, you heard as Isaac read, uh, Samson is miraculously born. Uh, You heard from the reading that he was under a Nazarite vow. You hear that word, it kind of sounds, but don't confuse it with Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene. It has nothing to do with the town. It's actually a different word that Nazir, the, the root word of that, means to dedicate. So someone who was under a Nazarite vow was dedicated or set apart to God. And specifically, what that means, what that vow means is that you weren't supposed to cut your hair, you weren't supposed to touch corpses, and you weren't supposed to drink alcohol or eat unclean things. Now, this vow is actually found, if you would turn to the book of Numbers, you could find the Nazarite vow vow laid out there, and people who usually took this vow would do it for a short duration of time to dedicate themselves or to set apart a specific time or season in their lives to God. But on the other hand, Samson was actually told to do this from birth for his uh, entire life. So as you would read this story, if you were an ancient Israelite, you would think, man, the person I'm about to meet is going to be incredible. He's like set apart from birth. He's going to be like this clean, this amazing man of character who's going to do something great. He's going to deliver his people. Expectations are sky high. And he doesn't quite live up. And we're going to keep a tally of maybe how he does with his Nazarite vow as we look at the story. So let's jump to chapter 14, where we first get introduced to Samson as an adult. So these first four verses, here's what it says. It says, Samson went down. This is Judges 14, 1 through 4. Samson went down to Timnah. 
And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now, what's your first impression of our hero? How is he doing on the character battle? How is he doing on his vow? Well, you hear right here, he wants what he wants right now. He's going to intermarry with a group of people that was supposed to be kicked out in the first place, not even be there from the very beginning, because that's what he wants right now. Not to mention that this is the group that God is on a mission to kick out because they're oppressing his people. He's not a high character guy, and he's already losing the character battle. And then you come to verse four, the last verse in there. And once again, it's a little bit confusing. Samson's situation, it said, was from the Lord. And we read that, and it kind of is a head scratcher because you're like, wait, did, did God cause Samson to be impulsively lustful and then disrespectful to his parents? Did God make Samson sin? Is that what this is trying to say? Well, I can say an emphatic no to that. That's not actually what's going on. But was God aware of Samson's shortcomings and ready to use them as an opportunity to take down the enemy of his people? Yes. Remember, Samson was the deliverer. He was the chosen one by God, and God was waiting for the opportunity to deliver him, or the opportunity for him to deliver his people in this judge's cycle that we've seen over and over again. So God is ready to move his redemption story forward, and he can redeem even Samson's impulsiveness and bring about good for this. So, what follows? Well, I just want to track through this story real quick, and we're going to hit the highlights of this story. So if you read on in chapter 14, um, Samson is on his way down to this place, Timnah. A lion jumps out. You remember this part? And the Spirit of the Lord gives him this strength, and he tears apart a lion and kills it with his own bare hands. The lion lays there dead. Fast forwarding, a couple days later, he's walking along the same route and he sees the lion. There's a swarm of bees and honey inside the carcass and he reaches down and he grabs the honey and he starts eating it. But what did he do? He touched a corpse. That was against his vow. That's strike one for him. So then, straight from there, he goes down, he goes down to Timnah, and he has what is essentially, it takes a while to pick up on this, but it's kind of a bachelor party. It's a week-long bachelor party with 30 Philistine dudes uh, before he marries his wife, and it's a kind of a seven-day drinking fest of sorts. Wait, he wasn't supposed to drink alcohol. There's another strike for him. What ends up happening, you may remember this if you're familiar with the story, he tells these men a riddle from Judges chapter 14, and he uh, bets 30 sets of clothing, and it says, the riddle says, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. And of course, this riddle is like impossible to solve if you were actually, unless you were actually there with Samson in the story of the lion and the honey. So the men get frustrated. There's just brokenness and messiness all over here. The men get frustrated, so they go to his wife and they co- or, or future wife and coerce her to manipulate Samson into telling them the answer of the riddle so they can win this little bet. And she does it. 
They tell the riddle. Samson gets very frustrated or angry because he finds out what happens and he goes and kills 30 Philistines. And this is just the beginning of it going back and forth and back and forth. Samson leaves. He comes back in chapter 15. Like I said, we don't have time to read all this, but I'm just doing a flyover. Samson comes back to get his wife, but his father-in-law thought maybe he wasn't coming back. And so his father-in-law gave his wife already to his best man, as it says. This does not make Samson the strong man happy. So the spirit of the Lord comes over him and he grabs 300 foxes and ties them together in pairs. So there's 150 pairs of foxes that he lights their tails on fire. They run through the wheat fields, the sustenance, life and wealth of the Philistines, and they burn their crop right before harvest time. You can imagine the back and forth continues to go. The Philistines are irate. And so they go to the father-in-law and the wife's house, they burn the house down with them inside of it. Here's murder. It just goes on and on and on. So um, at that point, the craziness continues because um, the Philistines come up against Israel and they say, hey, we're coming against you because Samson's messing us up. And Israel, who is oppressed by um, these Philistines, were so apathetic, were so okay with their sin, they were so okay with their oppression that they said, oh, no, no, don't come against us. It's, Samson is your problem. So we'll stick with our oppressors and we'll go capture our own deliverer and bring them and bring him over to you. And so that's exactly what they did. This is what the struggle of sin did to the Israelites. They do it. Samson, who's tied up, breaks free. He reaches down on the ground and grabs a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Wait, that's another corpse, right? That's strike three against Samson. He goes and he strikes down, I think somebody yelled it earlier, a thousand Philistines with a jawbone as the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And then you see in chapter 16, he heads to another city, Gaza, um, where the Philistines are at. First, he sleeps with a prostitute, and then he finds kind of the love of his life, Delilah. Somebody said it earlier. And there, this other saga starts. You probably remember this part where Delilah asks him, hey, what's this with your strength? How do you how is your strength taken away? And so it goes back and forth three times where Samson tells her three answers on three different nights on how you could take his strength away. Delilah's trying to trap him or trick him. And every time Samson didn't tell her the truth. And then finally after that, what happens is Delilah guilt trips him. And she says in uh, in chapter 16, verse 6, she says, How can you say, I love you, if your heart is not with me? In other words, Delilah's saying, You don't love me, and if you did, you would tell me. Now, let's just, let's just think about this for a second. She's saying, I've tricked you already three times, and I'm trying to take away your God-given strength so that you can become a prisoner of my people. And unless you do that, unless you help me out, unless you help me ruin you, you don't love me. Think these guys need marriage counseling maybe? Like, this is not okay. And then Samson, his perspective. Okay, so she's tried to kill me three times or at least imprison me. She's tried to take away my God-given strength. But here's the truth. She's really good looking. Should I ruin everything God has given me so I can keep this woman who's clearly trying to harm me? 
This is what you call a dysfunctional relationship, right? Any marriage in the room is like, wow, we're at least not that bad, right? Samson's got issues, and Samson proves time and time again that his impulsiveness to get what he wants right now always reigns king in his life. So Samson lets his secret out. Delilah cuts or has someone cut his hair. It's another strike against the vow, and he's done. He gets captured, and in a gory way, his eyes get gouged out. He gets taken to prison where he works this grain mill, um, and and then um, he gets brought. We'll talk about the ending a little bit later, um, but he gets taken in front uh, of the Philistines to to be entertainment for them. And eventually he actually kills himself and them at the same time. He dies with them. This is not exactly a feel good story, right? Can I tell you the best news about this story and maybe the worst news about this story that clearly applies to us right now, right here? The best news is is that God is on a redeeming mission. He has, a, he has power, he has a mission, and he will use even messed up and broken people to move his purposes forward. He will achieve it through his sovereignty. And that means no matter what we've done in this room, we're actually still candidates to be used by God. Amen. That's the good news. But here's the flip side of the same coin, the bad news. God can be doing a mighty work through you that accomplishes a lot for his kingdom, but you can be a train wreck on the inside that's headed for complete destruction. It's a sobering truth about this story. So then you ask, well, wait, how would this happen to us? I saw how it happened to Samson, but completely different context, right? How would we go down this path? Well, um, lucky, I say lucky, um, in God's sovereignty, I should say, um, Steve, our beloved worship leader, uh, on Monday, let us, let our staff through this staff meeting that was an exercise where he looked at an article by Tim Keller that talked about this very thing. And God was kind of priming the pump, I think, for us to consider um, what this looked like. And the, the, the title of the article was, Ministry Can Be Dangerous to Your Spiritual Health. And, um, and, and here's how uh, this article spelled out that this happens to us, how we go down this Samson kind of train wreck route. It says, it first starts with a, a, a depleted soul, a dry soul. I think this is probably a timely thing for us because I have lots of conversation with you, uh, you guys, and there's a lot of people after eight or nine months of COVID and after a presidential election that's chaotic and crazy, all of this stuff that's happening, a lot of us are just feeling a dryness. I feel a a, a dryness at times. And this is how um, Keller says it starts. And this is what he says when you feel dry and depleted um, in order to avoid going down that path. He says a couple things. First, he says, watch your heart with more diligence in these seasons than you would have otherwise. Watch your heart with more diligence. My wife and I had to press pause a couple weeks ago uh, because we recognized that we were just tired and exhausted and pressed to the edge because of all just stuff going on. And we're like, man, we're actually kind of, we're scrolling more on our phones than ever. 
We're connected to screens. We're, we're binge watching Netflix more than we used to. We're, we're less present with our kids than we've been in, in the last couple months. And so we had to say, okay, let's pause and let's sit down with a notebook and start scratching out, hey, what do we really want to be committed to? How are we going to keep our souls from going down this path? That may be something that, that you might have to do in this coming week. But That's one of the things to watch with diligence. The second thing he says is prayer. And the reason why I think he elevates prayer amongst all the spiritual practice that we could do is because prayer can never really be about knowledge or like accomplishing something. Prayer is just this time where we slow down and you're just forced to be in the presence of God, where you hear his voice, where you interact with God Almighty. You get to to experience how how he wants you to experience him. You get to, to gain his perspective and be reminded of his goodness. So Keller goes on in the article and says, so on this path, here's what not to do. Here's what you're going to be tempted maybe to do in these dry seasons. He says, you're going to be tempted to focus to on what you can do for Jesus instead of who you are in Jesus. The way he puts it is, he said, you can become more about spiritual gifts than about spiritual fruit. You're more about doing than being. Gifts are what we do. Fruit is who we are. Gifts are helping people, encouraging people, serving people, counseling people, teaching people, um, evangelizing, hosting people. That's our Christian activity. We can be prone to turn to that, but fruit from Galatians 5 is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? It seems by just observing the story of Samson and even the stories around us that actually the flashier of gifts that we have, maybe the more upfront we are, the more woo factor we have, the more charisma, the easier it is to get derailed on this path of temptation. I want to quote um, Keller from a section um, of his article that says, this is how, this is how a Samson-like train wreck develops. <clears throat> he says, your prayer life may be non-existent, or you may have an unforgiving spirit towards someone, or sexual desires may be out of control. But you get involved in some ministry activity which draws out your spiritual gifts. You begin to serve and help others, and soon you are affirmed by others and told what great things you are doing. You see the effects of your ministry and conclude that God is with you, but actually God was helping someone through your gifts even though your heart was far from him. Eventually, there will be some kind of collapse Steve was going through this with us on Monday. Our nine staff were there. And I'm like, oh, uncle, like, stop, Steve. I don't want to hear the conviction anymore, okay? It's just like it cuts to the heart. And I think Samson's story was a warning and a wake-up call for Israel and for us. And I think tonight um, we could be at a helpful crossroads in two different areas or two different battles that I mentioned clear at the very beginning. And the first one that we have to check in on, check in on is the character battle, a character battle. Do we diligently watch our character? You observe Samson and his impulsivity was deadly. And so we ask ourselves, okay, where do my impulses 
take me? If I just follow my heart or follow what I want to do, where does that actually take me? It's a good question to answer for yourself. Uh, Wells, uh, our son who just turned four this, uh, a couple weeks ago, he's got some emotions. And um, just two days ago, I think it was on Friday, I was home with him and um, he, he got hurt. He comes running into the kitchen crying and he's like, dad, I got hurt. He goes, I hurt my foot. I need the iPad to play a game right now. And I'm like, wait, what? The game is going to make your foot? I'm like, oh yeah. But isn't that how we act a lot of times? His impulse was to run to fun and instant entertainment. And it's kind of a funny story. But imagine the monster it would create if we treated every issue that he had with more screen time, more candy, or more instant gratification. Providence family, we have to watch ourselves because we can do the very same thing. Our impulses will pull us in deeper and deeper. Think about what our lust is doing to us. Think about what our anger is doing to us. Think about our impulse to to spend and spend and spend money or our impulse to emotionally eat uh, more and more. It grows more and more dangerously and it walks us away from experiencing the voice of God and the comfort and joy of God. And so my thought is, my suggestion, I guess, is... um, it might be a good time in your city group or in your huddle if you've got a group of guys or girls that you meet with to maybe have kind of a come to Jesus moment with the character battle that you guys are in. Help each other set up some healthy rhythms and boundaries and guidelines about spiritual fruit, not about spiritual effectiveness or your gifts. <clears throat> That's the character battle. The second thing is the glory battle. Uh, I didn't expound on this part in Samson's story, but there was a part where he picked up a jawbone, right? He killed a thousand men. We highlighted it before. Um, And God empowered him with the spirit of the Lord to do that because he was the deliverer. He was supposed to be the, the deliverer for his people to win them back. And he goes and he kills all the people. And they're supposed to, he's supposed to use that power to bring his people back to their God, Yahweh, so they can worship him and be free from these oppressors. But you know what he did afterwards? Um, before I tell you, if you read in the Old Testament um, and you read after, the, after Israel has a military victory, have you read, noticed what their songs are like? Or even what Deborah's song was like a few chapters ago when she had a victory. It's praise God, right? He's our deliverer. He's our refuge. He's our strength. He gave us the victory over and over. It's praising God. But what does Samson say in Judges 15, 16? He has this little poem-like thing, and he says, With a jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. That's bodies, by the way. With a jawbone of a donkey have I struck down. A thousand men. Who is this praising? It's Samson through and through. So then we uh, look in the mirror and we have to ask ourselves, whose glory are we fighting for? Who do we hope gets the credit when our gifts shine? I heard uh, an illustration on this idea that I'm going to straight steal from a pastor, J.D. Greer. Um, And he said, um, when it comes to doing God's work and God's power and then stealing the glory, it's kind of like, well, well, picture this. Picture a wedding 
One of the most glorious parts of a wedding ceremony is, at least as I've noticed in officiating lots of weddings over the years, is when the moment when the back doors open up and the bride appears and the bride and the groom, they lock eyes. Everyone loves that part, right? You stand up, you see the whole thing happening. It's just great, right? He said, Bruce says, imagine if in that moment, if this is the aisle, that, that the best man kind of sneaks over, he kind of inches his way over and then kind of sticks his head in front of the groom and he starts kind of making eyes. I'm not going to do it because it's going to be weird, but like he starts making eyes at the bride and he's trying to, to coerce her to come to him, even though it's their day and it's their moment and they were, uh, have been brought together by God and for their intended purpose together. It's a sly and sleazy move that could get a dude punched, right? I mean, for real, that's no best man. That's actually an enemy. And that, Providence family, is in essence what we are doing when we use our God-given gifts and our ministry opportunities for our own glory breaking up Jesus and his bride, trying to sneak in on what Jesus is trying to accomplish with his church. So we need to wrestle with this glory battle. I would encourage us, maybe that's something that you add to your huddle next time you meet when you're talking about this character thing. Okay, so how does all this stuff resolve? Because it's kind of a sobering thing the whole way through. Well, at the end of the Samson story, it's interesting because as I said before, he's blind at the end, he's a prisoner. Um, and he gets brought out to a party with the Philistines. There's 3,000 people in this kind of palace thing. Um, and there's Philistine elites there. There's 3,000 people in total. And he gets brought out to entertain everyone. And Samson, in somewhat of a change of heart, it seems like, in, in Judges 16, 28, it says this. It's a prayer. He says, oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, oh, God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. But we're still kind of left confused because this is seemingly kind of a genuine cry out to God. He calls him Yahweh, which is like addressing his, his grandeur, how, how great he is, how big he is. Um, but he still seems to be about his personal vengeance because he wants to do this because of his two eyes. But to his prayer, God answers his prayer and Samson has a boy next to him who places his hands on two pillars and he prays to God for one last bit of strength. He pushes the pillars over and it says that all 3,000 of them die along with Samson himself in that moment. And just like we started with mixed feelings towards Samson, we end with them as well. Because while he had enough faith through most likely this prayer and this redeeming moment at the end where he took out his enemy, enough to get mentioned in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith, right? But what God's people really needed was a set-apart deliverer. They needed a selfless deliverer. They needed a God-exalting deliverer, and Samson was not that. But if you turn in the pages of your Bible, 1,100 years later, there was a true deliverer that came who did it in an exact opposite way, one whose character was flawless. He was perfect in every way, a man who was, who was selfless, 
to his very last breath, and he was utterly set on God's will, his father's will, and his name was Jesus. And when his life came down to the end of it, he died with his enemies in the same way. However, it was not out of personal vengeance, but rather it was in self-sacrifice to kill our vengeance, to kill our rebellion, to kill our wickedness, and to forgive it. This true sinless deliverer is Jesus Christ. And he's wiped away our sins. He has given us new hope and giftings and callings. And he's now asking us to give everything to him. And so as we consider this character battle, we can try to turn to things like lust. We can try to turn to quick fixes, whatever our impulses would tell us to do. But we know that Jesus has promised to give us life and life to the full. He's the only one that satisfies. He's the only one that brings joy and hope. And he's inviting us, come to me if you're dry and depleted. Come to me, you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. And if we're caught in the glory battle, he he invites us, hey, living for your own glory is like a treadmill that never, ever, ever ends. You have to prove yourself time and time again to every person as you walk into every room. Uh, Lay your life down and live for my glory. The good news is, Providence family, the pressure is off. We don't have to be the perfect Samson. We don't have to be the better Samson. We don't have to deliver God's people with our gifts. We have to trust the true deliverer, Jesus, who has already delivered his people. And so the call tonight is to repent and turn to him, to listen to him, to act in his strength for his glory. It's all about Jesus. It's from him, it's through him, it's by him, and it's for him. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we come to you from a sobering, interesting passage, um, and we say um, that uh, we know that we've been about us more times than we'd like to admit. We know that we have turned the storyline of our lives um, not into a glorifying you, but into glorifying us so many times. But the beauty of your grace, we just want to thank you for a second that you are always inviting us in. You're coming to chase us down uh, like uh, the father in the prodigal God, or in the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15. And so God, I pray that we would um, feel the weight of our rebellion, but then be relieved and, and experience the grace of your forgiveness and the life that comes with you. God, I pray that it would be a worshipful time as we take communion together. We pray this in your name. Amen.